Tonight I want to share a message with you that I have entitled Mortalism, Continuing the Redemption of All Hollow Tide. Tonight this room has been intentionally darkened because of the somber tone of this holy day. Throughout this past weekend, we have celebrated All Hallows Tide, a combined effort of All Hallows Eve, All Saints Day, and then today, what is traditionally known as All Souls Day. The call for saints to mark out a time to remember the saints past, present, and future, those living and those who have moved from this mortal existence to a heavenly existence, has been a thing within the church since the first century. It would be the later centuries after the Constantinian switch of the church from being a persecuted underground movement to becoming an institutional faith that the saints within the church wanted to mark out specific days to bring the saints into mind. Yesterday, we celebrated All Saints Day, a glorious celebration indeed. Tonight, our solemn event is based on the efforts of a Catholic monk named Odillo of Cluny, who marked during the 11th century, he marked November 2nd as a day to make intercession for those who had died. This was based on a Hellenized view of the soul being held in quote-unquote purgatory and the futurist presupposition that judgment and resurrection was something that was going to happen in the future. Martin Luther and other reformers merged All Saints Day, which we celebrated yesterday and today, All Souls Day, into one day, marking issues not necessarily with the Hellenized view of the soul, that's a reform that would come later on in the church, but Martin Luther's reforms were based on abuses being done within church leadership. What was known as the papacy at that time, what they would do is they would have financial gain for the priests and confusion for the masses based on praying for the dead and getting your family's souls out of purgatory, you know, and there was a famous quote that used to follow that, and they would say, once, in the coffer, once a coin in the coffer goes, so a soul from purg- purgatory throws, or something of that similar thought, you know. Um, again, when you would throw a coin into the, the, the priest's bin, all of a sudden your family member would all of a sudden be received out of purgatory into heaven. Again, we, we would find much confusion and problem with that ideology. Surely when someone dies, we feel compassion. We want to know and reassure others that that loved one is in a better place. Sometimes we may allow our minds to carry us on, wondering what that might be like. What does it mean to get to Peter's gates as, you know, one traditional way of thinking marks it? What will it mean to stand before the judgment seat of God and receive our due punishment? This is nothing new to man, thinking in that way. From ancient times until today, people have pondered the details of what happens when we biologically pass on from this existence. Many a times, people will make up details that we find to be rational, that seem to work. We impose our own understandings upon what we understand to be dying in the body and what it's going to be in the heavenly realms. We might use our Bible, or we might use traditional line of thinking. We might use what we heard or what we've experienced to fill the gaps of what seems to be a very confusing thing. Some completely disregard any life after death, and they find their solution in that, personal ignorance. Nothing happens, because I don't know, therefore nothing. Again, a very faulty way 
to make any hermeneutic, any way of understanding. You know, God doesn't exist because I don't know him. That's simple as saying some of you don't exist because I might not know you. Again, you see how silly that is. Um, it doesn't work that way. One of the major problems we deal with the church, within the church is that we haven't quite figured out the anthropology of man. What are we made up of? What is this? What, how did I become who I am today? How did this get fashioned together? What am I made of? What, is it just my heart that keeps me alive? What gives me emotion? How do I feel things and understand things and learn things? How does the mind of man work? Again, these are questions that we've been seeking out since ancient times. We presuppose that the Bible is speaking about life after death, after physical death, in regards to judgment, hell, etc. And then we use our presuppositions to give us the answers that we're trying to find. Simply put, man does not contain a soul. Man is a soul. I know I am building on the wisdom of other men who have led this congregation, and I am grateful for that in these regards. Many within Christendom posit that man is a trinity of body, soul, and spirit. And it seems from a simple reading of, let's say, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that that would be the case, that we are made of a body, a soul, something innate within me that animates me and brings me to life, and then the spirit, which, again, they would posit gives you life as well. Or your soul might be your seat of emotion, whereas the spirit might be that which animates you, or vice versa. Again, these are simply impositions upon what we're reading in scripture. We're presupposing that the Bible is speaking about these matters, that the Bible is telling us what we're made of or what's going to happen when we physically die. Many within Christendom are fine and content with the confusion in those regards. The confusion many have is that they allow the platonic dualism of the Greeks an invasive view to take place of Hebrew thought just as this happened with Alexander the Great when Hellenism conquered the known world. Even before the time of the first century, we know that by and large, there was confusion even amongst Israel, the Jews, as to what God, their God, Jehovah, Yahweh, would reveal. They didn't even understand the details of what that was going to look like. How was this hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, the gospel, as the Apostle Paul proclaimed it, how was this going to be fulfilled? When, how, and with whom would God provide a resurrection of the dead ones? When and how would the last enemy, death, be destroyed as posited in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26? It was made clear that through the revelation of Jesus Christ that the hope of Israel would be fulfilled. Essentially, this is the gospel message, that Jesus was found worthy to make known the manifold wisdom of God, to unveil the mystery of the ages. And that was what, what was being propagated and explained throughout your New Testament. Sadly, due to the creeping in of Hellenization, as well as futurism, both aberrations of the gospel, it seems that many are confused in regards to how the resurrection of the dead was accomplished and what that means today. What exactly does it mean that the dead were resurrected? One acceptable interpretation was that was offered through the Catholic institution and is still offered by many confused Protestants today is that the soul of man is immortal. Two issues you should have with that. The first one is that according to scripture, man, as well as animals, do not have souls. They are souls. Again, I'll simply bring you to scripture here. In Genesis chapter 1, if we were reading this in the Hebrew language, 
we would see this even more clearly. However, in Genesis chapter 1, we read this. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And if you were reading in Hebrew, you would see that as living nephesh, which is the word for soul. So again, the waters were swarming with living souls. Then you move to verse 21. God created the great sea monsters and every living soul or creature in the NASB translation that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. God saw that it was good. Again, we, we understand that this is speaking about animals in the water. These are souls according to scripture. You continue into verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, again, living nefesh, souls, after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Then we move to verse 30. Every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky to everything that moves on the earth, which was given life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And there it would be everything that moves on the earth. It's speaking about, again, living souls. So right there we see that we're not even talking about man yet. And we've already heard about the soul according to the Hebraic understanding, the nephesh. In the New Testament, we see the word sukikos, meaning soulish or the soul. And I'll be dealing with that here in a moment. Again, if you're, you're looking for some verses, I can show you with sukikos would be Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, where it's talking about Herod sought out the soul of Jesus. Now, he didn't seek to find some spiritual seated thing within his body that we can't explain. He sought the life of Jesus, his soul, his whole being, what animated him, what made him alive. In Luke chapter 12, verse 20, we read this. But God said to him, you fool, this very hour your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And it's talking about the, the man that you know, will covet all of his goods and he doesn't want to give anything. And the, the judgment is that God wants your soul. It's not saying that God wants to take the spiritual thing with inside of you. It's saying, no, God is about to take your life, your soul, your whole being, your essence of being alive and make you thus physically dead. The soul is what animates a man. It's what brings living beings, whether they're animals or man, alive. That's why when it, you're reading the creation story and it says that God formed man out of the dust and then he breathed life into him and man became a living soul. You see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. What we understand there is that God created man just as he created animals. That man was just similar to the animals. They were all living souls. However, if you follow the story of Genesis, what you see, if you truly understand the text, is that God puts, though he made them alike, man and animal, he puts man above animal and gives man dominion over the animals. And the, the context of that story in the ancient Near East was that in contrast to the other pagan religions that were exalting things created by God, such as birds, suns, moons, and every other type of creeping creature, that God, the God of Israel, the true God, was making himself known through man, through creation. And that's why he exalted man, put man in his presence, and thus allows man the opportunity to have a relationship with God, what we would call life to the full or eternal life. That's the creation story. An important thing to keep in mind as we seek to understand the scriptures is that we must understand them from the vantage point of the original audience perspective, something we here at Blue Point Bible Church value very much. As J.I. Packer 
and many other scholars have noted, our presuppositions and our traditions, the things we've learned that we, even, we don't even realize that we have learned, follow us into our interpretations more than we may think. Again, if you were to look around our culture and you were to ask people about physical death, you would come to see that almost every American or every person on the planet has come to think about biological death at one point or another, has contemplated what happens when we biologically cease to exist. It's nothing new to man. The thing we want to do is we don't want to be content with making up our own interpretation of what that might be, imposing our own understanding of what the soul might be, and, and, and offer that as a solution to people for the confusion of what happens after we die. So let's talk about biological death. What happens after we die? Now, if we're, we're to go to the Old Testament and say that we're going to find this in the Word of God, a couple places I might point you to. The first one would be Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And the reason why is that tells you that the Gentiles, prior to the time of Jesus, were in the world without God, without hope. Meaning, therefore, that when they died, they died continually without hope, unless, of course, they were fortunate enough to be one of those proselytes to the Judaic faith. And then they would have been recognized as Israelites or proselyte Israelites. The Israelites, while Gentiles, again, in the world without hope, die and have no hope. The Israelites believed that when they died, they would be gathered to their forefathers. First Kings chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that about King David. King David would be gathered to his forefathers. And then if you follow that up to all the way up to Acts chapter 2, by the time you get into the New Testament, you know that they're still saying that David is still dead, that Christ, unlike David, had been risen from amongst the dead ones, whereas David was still subjected to death, awaiting the resurrection of the dead that the prophets longed for, Daniel chapter 12, when the righteous and the wicked would therefore be judged. That's the way that life was in the Old Covenant. If you were not Israel... You died, you went, there was no hope for you. You just simply ceased to exist. If you died as a Jew or as an Israelite under their covenant with a covering is what they would call it, you would die and you would have to wait for the time of the resurrection of the dead. Now, the question many have is those who are waiting in Sheol, what is, you know, in the Old Testament Sheol or in the New Testament Hades, were they alive? When King David was gathered to his forefathers, do we presuppose that there was something about him that was alive in another realm. And I'll tell you this evening that if you believe that, that is a presupposition of your own. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that those who went to Sheol in the grave would live biologically or live in any form until the resurrection of the dead when God would raise them to life and thus give them life. In the New Testament, we see Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, that once all the details of Jesus Christ are accomplished, A.D. 70 comes about the coming of the Lord, the judgment, the resurrection of the dead, that what can be said then is blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on because they are no longer waiting for what the prophets had longed for, resurrection of the dead. That those who in Christ, when they die, they go from glory in this life, meaning eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ, John chapter 17, verse 5, which tells you eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. In this life, you go from knowing Jesus Christ to dying and then, well, not dying, sorry, you go from glory to glory. You go from life to life. You go from knowing Jesus Christ in this life to knowing Jesus Christ in another realm, something way beyond us, something that we'll never know. Sadly, Hellenization had its beginnings in centuries prior to Christ. Then, when the coming of the Lord occurred, the church became largely Gentile. A failure to keep things in context led to confusion in many regards and an odd imposition of how things worked in the Old Covenant. 
a concept of Sheol, Hades, or what the Catholics now refer to as purgatory, where these souls would then again die. You would die in this life, and you would go to wait again for the manifestation of judgment and resurrection of the dead. Again, you see the problem there of imposing a Greek concept on the soul that we live after biological death outside of God having to raise the dead. You see that? That's where a lot of the confusion is coming in. And I'll clarify something tonight, and I'm going to get to that in a moment, about resurrection of the dead, what that meant and what that means for us today. It's important to understand that the Jews, when they talked about ha'olam, right, which is the, Greek, the Hebrew phrase for the afterlife, ha'olam. And if you were to do some research and you were to go home tonight and say, let me Google um, ha'olam and see what happens and you know, find some Jewish studies into what this would be, you know what you would find? Virtually nothing. The Jews had no concept of the afterlife. To the Jews, life to them was living in the land, being blessed, and not having to worry about invaders. That was their life after death. Death was that they were living in a foreign nation and having to serve the ruler. So what would life after death be for them? It would be restoration to their own land, being given all the promises and all the things they longed for. And that's, they were content with that. They didn't desire to look into the realms that they couldn't even comprehend and begin to impose different ideas. Then comes Alexander the Great and the Greeks. The Greek mind, the Western mind even today, is the mind that wants to know the things that we probably will never begin to understand. And all the reason that makes that very strange is that I, think, I believe most of us in this room could probably bounce around with things that some of us might understand that others don't. We haven't even begun to understand all the things that we can understand about the things that can be understood and yet we want to understand the things that we're, we're never going, that are beyond us. God says that no one knows, no mind knows the things that the Lord has prepared for us. That is going to be beyond us. And if anybody's willing to offer you an easy answer and say, this is what it is, they're lying. That's not what the Bible says. Again, I mentioned that when someone dies and we want to have compassion, again, our minds, our imaginations begin to conjure up all sorts of things. But let us not say that that's what the things of the Lord are. Let's not, let's not say that that's what the truth is. When we get to the resurrection of the dead, the big question is going to be, is it in the future or is it in the past? Again, I you know, would be the one to posit that the resurrection of the dead, as properly understood through the Law and the Prophets, is something that happened in the past. That ultimately it was the restoration of Israel through Jesus Christ, having the opportunity to know God, not know God under a sin in law, you know, that they felt doomed that God was going to judge them one day. But now, through Jesus Christ, they had been raised to life, and they have the opportunity to be in a free-reigning relationship with God where we know that our law is to love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's our law. That's the relationship we have with our God, that everything he demands us to do, we know even within our inner nature that that is the thing that would bring the most pleasure to us. If I could just spend all my life loving God with all my mind, heart, soul, and strength and loving my neighbor as I love myself and that's the way that I please my God, I'll tell you what, that is a big difference than what the old covenant Jews understood. Theirs was dependent upon sacrifice, dependent upon 613 laws that everybody in this room is violating at this point and we will continue to violate most likely for the rest of our lives just because they're cultural norms. So they did not live according to that. They believed that if they violated these old covenant laws, they were therefore declared dead and God would bring judgment upon them and they would be found in another land. They would hope to be restored and brought into another land. Again, I'm saying all of that to posit to you that it's the Greek mind, the Western mind, that demands answers for things that are beyond us. 
when we posit that the resurrection of the dead is in the past, what I am telling you is that what God did was took an old covenant body of sin, as it is called in the New Testament, and he raised it in glory and created what we essentially know as the body of Christ, what we celebrated yesterday. You see, that's the body of Christ. That's what was raised up in glory. In that, what happened was those that were in Hades, in the old covenant, that again were waiting for the promises of their forefathers, were raised into glory as well. That is a foundation of our faith, that God showed himself faithful to those old covenant saints. However, the question that many will have is, okay, so there were souls in Hades, right? Dead people. That's what we would say. They were in the grave. Right? Not a, I'm not talking about a place under the earth that the best of your imaginations can create today. What I'm talking about when I say in Hades or in the grave, I'm talking about done, dead. Again, whether they were um, cremated or buried, that person is dead and they are you know, part of the, the dead ones. That's what we're talking about here, the dead ones. So the question that many would have is how were they raised? Right? That's, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the New Testament church was wondering, well, then how were the dead ones going to be raised? How are the old covenant saints going to share in the glories that we have now in the body of Christ? They're dead. Are they going to be given life and raised up in, you know, a sort of zombie apocalypse on earth? Um, you know, you can imagine the questions. And then again, another cultural problem that we have today is that was it individual or was it corporate? You see, today we would, most people, if you talk to 99% of people, they're worried about the things for them. You know, what is the resurrection for me? When do I get my new body? And I don't believe I'm taking your hope away if I tell you it wasn't about you getting a new body. It was about us getting a new body. That we were allowed to be raised up into the glories with those old covenant saints into the glorious body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, whereas we would read with what kind of body do they come? And many people today, unfortunately, due to horrible mistranslation of that text, they say... Look, it's talking about one day you will get a spiritual body. What I'm telling you is there are two bodies. There's an old covenant body that you must be of flesh and blood, old covenant Israel, or be a proselyte to their religion. That was the old covenant body that you had to be a part of to know God. Now, that old covenant body has been declared dead, never to raise again, and you have been brought into the body of Christ. Those old covenant saints in another realm beyond us have been brought into the glories of Christ in the first century. Ultimately, that's what we believe happened in the first century at the coming of the Lord. That those dead ones were raised in glory. Those that were with their fathers, gathered to their forefathers in the old covenant, walked worthy of the old covenant. They were gathered to their forefathers. They were judged and ultimately you know, either suffered eternal condemnation or they suffered eternal glory which is being brought into the realities with God, that they were brought into the body of Christ and therefore given the same thing me, all of us in this room have, a free relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not based on our own merits, our own righteousness, or anything that we can conjure up in our own minds. It was the blessing of God, the grace of God, that raised up those old covenant saints as well as raised us up into glory. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, actually I'm going to read that verse, those verses to us, this evening. Second Peter chapter twenty uh, chapter one uh, two verse twenty one through twenty five. I'm 
sorry, that is not the right verse. First uh, Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one through twenty-five. I think I said Second Peter. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entreating himself to, those who ju- to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So the conclusion that we should be having in our message today is that we have been given a foundation that has been found faithful. That Jesus Christ brought the judgment that he promised, the sign of Jonah, upon that wicked generation. And with that, we understand that the dead ones of the old covenant that longed for resurrection were raised up into glory. Again, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you read the Apostle Paul's explanation when they say, how then will they therefore come? You know, with what kind of body will the dead ones come? He goes on this explanation and which it seems rather parabolically, he explains, well, the, one, the moon has one kind of body, the sun has one kind of body, the star has another kind of body, natural things have bodies they're given, spiritual things have bodies they're given. And what he's essentially saying is that This is beyond you. God can give anything. He can raise things up in any way he wants. Because essentially, I'll tell you this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what you have is you have some within the church saying the dead, they're gone. They're done. They don't receive the blessings of being in Christ and enjoying Jesus Christ because those people who died in the old covenant are dead. So the natural question you would have, as I would, is, well, then how is God going to give This spiritual covenant that you and I alive right now are enjoying with God, how is he going to give that to dead people? Wouldn't everybody in this room be willing to ask that? How is he going to, dead people from 2,000 years ago, how is he going to bring this knowledge to them? And then essentially, if you begin to understand your Bible, you know that Peter actually announces that, that Jesus, when he died, he went down into the depths of Hades and he he, he said that he was victorious and he declared victory over death the death of the old covenant that continued to harp on, um, continued to accuse the Jews before God day and night. That again, being a Jew under the old covenant, you constantly felt in fear, and you felt that you, you know there was no hope for you. There would be um, no promise for you in the future. Jesus Christ comes to say, well, based on His righteousness, you can have a you know hope in the future. So all of that being brought together, the old covenant, they understood that. God was saying, I can do things my way. I give everything a different type of body. I can give things earthly bodies. I can give things spiritual bodies. So it would only be the fool who would not understand that God can supply and God can do the things that are beyond our understanding. However, the key is going to be that when God does things beyond our understanding, let's not sit here and try to make up what we think that looks like. That's not being honest to Scripture. The the goal is this. Trust God in this life. Live for his glory, and you will be brought into glory in the afterlife. So with that, what I want to do tonight is I want to remind each and every one of us of the importance of us living for the glory of God. And I'll tell you how that relates to All Souls Day. Each of you have been given a candle tonight. While many will focus on an aberration of the gospel, praying to and for dead people on a night like tonight, 
which they erroneously refer to as immortal souls being held in purgatory. We understand that the departed saints of our faith are not in a limbo state. They're not sitting in some place waiting to be resurrected and waiting to be judged to go into another realm. No. Those who are in Christ are, have received the conclusion of election. They have went from glory in this life, the elected glory in this life, that I have the opportunity to confess my faith in Jesus Christ because God did a work within me. Those that pass on from this life receive the glory that God can provide in the afterlife. You see, it never, it never begins with us. It never begins with what we can imagine. I did not imagine standing before you all in my earlier years in life, I never imagined standing before Blue Point Bible Church preaching the gospel each and every Sunday as well as here on November 2nd, 2015. However, here I am. This was God's plan. So now we can make up what we want the afterlife to be all day. You know, just like when I was a younger kid and I made up what my future life was going to look like. Again, not looking anything like this. I can use that same understanding of God to say, well, I can conjure up all the images in the world of what the afterlife is going to be. I could misquote as many Bible verses as I want and try to make them say what I want them to say to give me an assurance about the afterlife. Or I could do what God is actually desiring throughout all of Scripture. Have faith in me. Understand the things that I have already established, the things that are as clear as day, and have faith in that. And understand that in AD 70, he did raise up those dead ones because he did show himself faithful in judgment upon that wicked generation, just as he said he would And that would be the revealing of what would happen of those in Sheol or Hades. That judgment showed that God was faithful not only in bringing judgment upon the Old Covenant, but also that he was faithful to those Old Covenant saints that were hoping for the resurrection of the dead. So it was a two-part thing that happened at the coming of the Lord. Just to give you a little bit more detail, and when you're here on Sunday listening to Revelation, that's what you're learning the story of. You're learning the story of how God brought judgment upon that wicked generation, but also brought faithful brought a faithful reminder to his people that I will restore you, I will resurrect you. And ultimately, that's the story of how the saints survived the war of the Jews in the first century. So again, each of you have these candles. When we light our candles, we're going to be thinking about the fact that there are two options in this world. There are those who squander this life, they fail to live victoriously in Christ, and they are truly dead today. And if they continue to squander their life and ignore the sacrifice of Christ and do not have the divine, again, way beyond us understanding of election and do not have that light within them, they are dead. The other option is they've received eternal life, that they're enjoying life in Christ today alive and thus we can look forward to and have faith that if we live victoriously in Christ in this life, that when we depart, we will continue in that same glory. What I am not content with is some among us, the living saints, being brought from what we would call the sukikos, the natural soulish life, to a pneumatos, which is the spiritual life in Christ. I am not content with failing to understand all that we talked about tonight, failing or, well, failing to to understand what we talked about tonight and instead focusing on wrong things. As we go about lighting candles tonight and singing this song, let us focus on lighting our light, letting our light shine before men. That way, as we spend time thinking about those who will depart and those who 
may have already departed. Whether we think about saving souls or all the things that could come into mind when we begin to think about souls. Let's not make up what we think it is and and allow that to uh, distract us from what the true gospel is. Instead, let's not accept fables, stories that make us feel good and give us a false semblance of hope. No. Let us properly use the knowledge of God to be lights in this world. That way we know that we are directing all souls to eternal life. And that way we could rest assured that when we're asked about what happens when people die and pass from this life, we could say, well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what. I'm going to do the best thing I can, and that's to preach the gospel, to live as a light in this world, and thus give hope upon the foundation that I already know is assured. Amen? Well, I'm going to put on this song tonight, and I'm going to go around lighting these candles, and I pray that each and every one of us has been admonished by this message this evening. Oh, my God.
Well, that concludes our evening. So what I want to say before you blow it out is as much as you strived and paid attention to this light this evening, let us move forward from this All Souls Day seeking to do that with our lives. Guard our lives so that we can continue to be a light to the nations and thus truly celebrate all souls. Amen? Please blow out the candle. And join me in prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, we magnify you, Lord. And as we go through this All Souls Day, Lord, thinking about, obviously, the aberrations of the gospel, Lord, and the false understandings of the, the word soul, and this strange ideology that comes up about all these strange things people envision about the afterlife, Lord, and the false hopes that we give people through these strange gospels and thoughts, Lord, I pray that this evening that we have offered some clarity in these regards, that we know that we can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, standing upon such a, such a strong foundation, having faith that not only are we to glorify you in this life, that we will glorify you in eternity, Lord, that this evening that we will keep all of that in mind and that we will continue to glorify you and we will continue to walk forward in that clarity, being a light to the nations. Lord, we magnify you this evening. We thank you for all that we have in you, and we pray that you continue to give us the strength to walk worthy. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.